0: So today we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 28. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 22. Now I title this message Bethel, the house of God. Bethel, the house of God. So um, let's go ahead and jump into that. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob went out from Beersheba, went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seeds, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. I didn't, uh, um, there, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this uh, way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So, uh, first thing I thought about when I was looking at this passage is uh, I could go out and buy a couple of stones and try to sell them as pillows and see whether or not I might get any bites on that. Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, what we talked about, if you had a chance to look at last week's message, uh, the title of it was Abraham, the prophet of God. And uh, I mentioned something in that passage uh, called the Law or Principle of First Mention. And uh, in that Principle of First Mention, that's a guideline that some people use, not everybody, but some people use to study scripture. And the Law of First Mention says that to understand a particular word or doctrine, we must find the first place in scripture that word or doctrine is first revealed and study that passage. The reasoning for that is that the Bible's first mention of a concept is oftentimes the simplest and the clearest presentation. And then later on in the Bible, those doctrines are more fully developed on that simple foundation. When I say simple, I'm talking about uh, the simplest definition of that foundation. So to fully understand an important and complex theological concept, Bible students are advised to start with its first mention. This text, as last, last week we looked at the first place that a prophet, the name prophet, or the, the uh, word prophet was used, and we studied that. Well, as I was going through this, I just had that same thought. Hey, you know, this is the first time that we ever see the concept of the house of God. It's the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture. I happen to be reading through the book of Genesis, by the way, if you hadn't noticed. And so it's the first time it's mentioned in Scripture. So that understanding in mind, and since it was fresh on my mind, I said, well, how is the house of God, uh, which is first mentioned here, how is it defined in this passage or in this text according to this law of interpretation called the law of first mention. Now, obviously, uh, you can grow uh, that definition quite a bit. We're just kind of looking at maybe the foundational principles of the house of God according to this law of first mention. So in this text, Jacob is going to his mother's relatives in another another land to get a wife for himself. If you don't know the backdrop to that, uh, Jacob is called, his name means deceiver or heel grabber, and he, uh, he bought uh, the right of the uh, firstborn from, um, from his brother Esau when Esau was hungry. It wasn't so much on Jacob, although Jacob did trick him out of that, but it was more on Esau than it was on Jacob. And then he deceived Esau out of the blessing that usually goes to the firstborn. And so uh, Esau was pretty upset and was comforting himself with killing Jacob, yes, he was, that's what the Bible says, and so uh, uh, Rebecca, his mother, thought, Jacob, this is a good time for you to leave and go find yourself a wife, so Jacob leaves, and by the way, I don't know, I, I was doing a study on this, it's just, just for you to know, Jacob is not 16, he's not 18, he's about 77 years old, all right, about 77, if you do the math and go and find out how long was he in a certain place, how old was he, he's about 77 years old when he left to go find a wife for himself. And so um, he's going on, the, on a trip, he's going on a journey, he doesn't have GPS, um, he doesn't have a cell phone coverage, he's just, back then, they just used to go and uh, follow the stars, follow the moons to the place where they're gonna go, and uh, he stops to rest for the night, they didn't have Motel 6, they didn't have, some of y'all like uh, um, Courtyard by Marriott, some of y'all like Best Western, they didn't have any of that. What he, what he found was a place, there was probably no ants, no scorpions, no snakes, and he found a stone to lay his head on, and uh, he went to sleep. And so while he was sleeping, Jacob has a dream, and when he wakes up, uh, he, he, we're going to find out what that dream was about, we kind of read a little bit, we'll go into that a little bit here in a minute, but when he wakes up, he calls the place where he's at, he names it Bethel, and he says, why, which we're going to look at here in a minute again. He names the place that Bethel, because to him it is, and by the way, Bethel actually translates the house of God. It's the Hebrew name. Beth is uh, the name for house, and El is a name for God, so it actually means the house of God, right? And so to him it is the house of God. And the key element to being the house of God for Jacob, this is the house of God, and so then he defines what that means. The gate of heaven. This is the house of God, it's the place where heaven and earth meet, right? So with that being in mind, then there's a couple of things I want to grasp here, what is, uh, we're we're looking at the, the topic of first mention of the house of God, what are some things we can learn from this passage? First thing we learn about the house of God, it's a place of revelation. It's a place of revelation. Genesis 28. Again, we'll just kind of reread some of these passages again just to reinforce the text so you see where we're at. In Genesis 28, 10 through 12, it says again, Jacob went from Beersheba. He came to a place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head, lay down in that place to sleep, and then he dreamed. And when he was dreaming, behold, a ladder was set upon the earth, its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. Now, if you were to read the Bible um, and, and come away with an understanding of some of the things that the Bible teaches, one of the things you'll realize is the Bible speaks of two different realms. Uh, obviously, there are, we don't know how many dimensions there are, but we're going to talk about two different dimensions. We're going to talk two different realms, the natural realm and the spiritual realm. Or we can do it this way, the seen versus the unseen right? But when we're talking about seen versus unseen, you can be in the natural realm, you can still see some things uh, that are not necessarily part of the spiritual realm. You can look in a microscope and you can see some things you can't necessarily see with a naked eye. So what we really uh, want to define this is you have the natural realm and you have the spiritual realm. So the natural realm is the realm in which we live. And also the Bible talks about the spiritual realm, which by the way, the Bible describes as a superior realm. Because it's from the spiritual realm that the natural realm was created. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but which the, the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, the natural realm, are temporary, but the things which are not seen, the spiritual realm, are eternal. So most of the time people, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the church, but yes, we can even talk about the church as well. Most of the time people live unaware of the spiritual realm that exists around us. right? we're often enamored by people that God has gifted with the ability to see into the spiritual realm. Uh, if you've ever had people talk about I see angels or uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of different things that are going on, they have this capacity to see into the spiritual realm, which normally most of us don't have that capacity, but it doesn't mean that we're not aware of the spiritual realm through different senses that we have, just like a blind person may not be able to see But their other senses allow them to see even, uh, to to be aware of things even more uh, 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 aware of things than somebody that can see. Okay, because their other senses pick up. So um, most of the time people live unaware of the spiritual realm. When we are in an environment where the presence of God is given priority, then the spiritual realm becomes easier or more readily perceived. In this place where Jacob is at, Jacob, while he was laying down, has a dream and he perceives what is taking place spiritually in the place where he's at. While he's dreaming, God reveals to him what's happening in that place. In a sense, his eyes were open to a reality that he had been blind to before. In the same way, in a place where the presence of God is, where the Spirit of God is moving, which is really what we're going to say the house of God is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a place where the presence of God resides. You can call something a house of God and God not be anywhere near it. So it's not that it's called the house of God, it's that it is the house of God. And where you truly have the house of God, you have the presence of God. For instance, when David was uh, given the blueprints to build the temple and Solomon built the temple, just as it had in the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness, when they followed the blueprints and did what God said, then all of a sudden they put the ark of God in the middle of the most holy place and then they put a sacrifice on the altar. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and it was a sign that the presence of God, it wasn't just a structure anymore, it was a place where God had chosen to put his presence. So when you truly have the presence of God in the house of God, not just something called a church, but you have the presence of God moving in the church, right, in, in the same way, we find that the reality of the spiritual realm becomes evident, perceivable, visible, tangible to those who are impacted by it. All right? I, one of the, the, the most comforting things, uh, pleasing things for me to hear is when someone comes in and says, I feel something, because they have no words for it. They don't always have a vocabulary for it. But when I walk in this place, I feel something. I don't know what it is. I feel peace. I feel love. I feel uh, What they're sensing is spiritually, they're sensing the presence of God. Right? And so what's happening? They're not sensing the presence of God anywhere else. They're sensing the presence of God where the house of God is. So in some sense, what we're saying is God is revealing himself to them, not necessarily with words, God speaks a lot, and he sometimes chooses to use words. Right? If you come into a place and you sense uh, uh, love or you sense peace, didn't he tell the disciples when you walk into a house, speak peace into the house? and somebody perceives that, what they're perceiving is a spiritual realm, and they're getting an awareness of that spiritual realm, and in some sense, they're they're getting an awareness of the presence of God, right? In 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17, this is a more concrete way of understanding what I'm saying here. It's a a passage from the Bible. There was a guy by the name of Elisha, and he had a servant, and his servant uh, was going out to wash Elisha's underwear, No, (laughs) he doesn't say that. I'm just taking liberties. He's going out to do his duty. He walks outside the city. When he walks outside the city, uh, there was an enemy uh, 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 nation that wanted Elisha's head. And they wanted Elisha's head because any plan they would make against the nation of Israel, God would reveal to Elisha, and Elisha would reveal it to the king. So So the enemy... I think his name was uh, the, 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 the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, wanted his head. And so he sent an army to capture Elisha, and they surrounded the city at night. And so the servant goes out to wash Elisha's underwear. Again, that's my... my what, what. And he goes out, and all of a sudden he sees an enemy army surrounding the city, and he's like, he begins to tremble. He's in trouble because he knows they're after Elisha, and since he's with Elisha, they're after him as well. And he says, Oh, master, master, we're in trouble. And then the text 6, 16, 15 through 17, I just took part of it. He says, So Elisha answered his servant, Do not fear for those who are with us or more than those who are with them. So I would imagine um, if you were doing a video or a skit or an act, you have to, there was probably a pause here and the camera's looking out and is looking at this whole army of enemies and he's looking at and then the 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 camera turns around from an outside perspective and sees Elisha and sees a servant and the servant going what 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 there is more with us than there are with them are you kidding me ah and then Elisha prays and he says Lord I pray that you would open his eyes that he might see. Well, he's not blind. His eyes aren't closed. So what is he talking about? Opening his spiritual eyes, right? And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and now he saw something he couldn't see before with his natural eyes. Now God was helping him to see in the spiritual realm. And I I just have this thought before I finish that God is opening some of y'all's eyes tonight. And some of y'all are going to begin to see into the spiritual realm. May it be so, Lord. I just keep having that going over in my head. And so sometimes I feel like my job is to declare it. And when I declare it, it releases uh, that for that to happen in your life. Don't be surprised. Even if tonight some of you see an angel behind me or somewhere in here doing whatever he's going to do, although it might happen in dream, it might happen in vision, all different ways it might happen, I'm just saying I believe God is opening some of your eyes tonight. Anyway, uh, Lord, let it happen just like Elisha prayed. I pray that that will happen in your life. So then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha knew they were there the whole time because he could see them. But the servant couldn't, right? So it wasn't like he prayed and all of a sudden they showed up. No, he said, God, open his eyes so he can see what's there. And that's what he did. And he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots. And so what I want you to realize is that this place where Jacob was at is a place where uh, it was a place of revelation. He called the house of God. Uh, bethel the house of god and at this place is where he had a dream and so to me the house of god and today the church is the house of god it's where the presence of god is it's about people is a place of revelation where god reveals himself and makes himself known god is a spirit right and so he has to be perceived spiritually but God gives us spiritual senses opens our eyes in a way if you want to use that as a metaphor because it's not always with our eyes but he opens our eyes to perceive him to perceive spiritual realities amen so the house of God is a place of revelation not only is the house of God a place of revela- uh, place of revelation the house of God is a place of promise all right Genesis twenty-eight thirteen through fifteen again our text. Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder, and I said, uh, uh, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which I li- lie, which you lie, I will give to you and your your descendants. So again, it's a place. Revelation. He saw the ladder, but then God speaking to him as well. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. So what I want you to see is that in this place of revelation, God was speaking to Jacob in this place, which we call the house of God, the very first mention of the house of God. It was the place where Jacob heard the word of God, which were also the promises of God for his life. Doesn't the Bible say, in here are pre- great and precious promises, right? The word of God. What we're talking about is a place of the word or a place of promise. I, I don't know if, uh, 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 I'm trying to get you to understand. It's not just that everything in here is a promise, but uh, the Bible does say that the word of God contains precious promises. And what we see him doing with Jacob here is promising him what he's going to do. The Messiah was the promised Messiah. The promise that God made in the Garden of Eden whenever Adam and Eve sinned, this is the promised seed who the, uh, uh, the, the snake will uh, bruise his heel, but the promised seed will crush his head. Right? This is the one who is to come. So it is this place, it is the place of promise. Jacob would have to appropriate these promises for his life. But the key that we want to bring out here is that this place, the place where the house of God is first mentioned is the place of promise. The place where Jacob heard the word of God and what God was promising him for himself. Second Corinthians 1 and 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him we say amen to the glory of God through us. Second Peter one three through four, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which He has been given to us exceedingly great there it is, great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through So, basically, the word of God is God revealing himself to us, but he's revealing himself to us and saying that, listen, this is who I am, and if you understand who I am, I have made a way for you to approach me. I have made a way for you to have a relationship with me, and in me are salvation, deliverance, healing, uh, 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 financial blessings—all these things are in God, right? So when we understand that that this place, the house of God, is a place of promise, it's a place where people can come in and find hope. Not, I hope God. No, all the promises of God are. Yes, and so when they hear who God is, what God has made available at the cross, if they will mingle their faith with the promise of God, they can then appropriate those promises for themselves. We spend a lot of time talking about healing. Right, we'll continue to talk about healing. We're seeing people being healed of things. I love to do. Uh, when Anna did that little skit, just uh, there was like 15 people up here, and all of them had received something incredible from God. Uh, the promises of God had become evident in their life. People that have been resurrected. People are being healed of cancer. People are being delivered from different things. God is doing. Why is that happening? Because people come and they're hurting. They're 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 sick. They're whatever they're at in life. They hear about who God is is. They hear about the promises of God. They put their faith in God. They get saved, healed, delivered, set free. The house of God is to be a place of promise. A lot of times we we think it's a place of judgment. It's really not a place of judgment. We're already under judgment. It's not supposed to be a place of condemnation. It's supposed to be a place of hope, right? Now, Sometimes you have to make people aware of where they're at so that they will recognize that they need to put their hope in something other than, what, than where they're at. They, you, if you, you don't call out upon a Savior if you don't know you're lost. But it's not to condemn. It's to, for people to recognize, hey, I'm lost. I need a Savior. And then God says, I am that Savior. Je- Jesus actually is from the name Yeshua, which means salvation, deliverance. And victory, amen. So, what we see here is a place of revelation. The house of God is a place of revelation. Again, this is the law of first mention. This is a place of what we're finding here in this place, and it's also a place of uh, a promise. But the third thing we find, it's also the place of worship. <coughs> Excuse me, it's a place of worship. Genesis 28: 16 through 18. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome in this place. What happens when you get in the presence of God and we, when the Lord begins to move in this place in Shady Oaks, what you'll often hear is you'll hear T.R. going, God is awesome. In a sense, that's what Jacob was doing. He said, how awesome, right, is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of that. So what does that mean? Well, what we see taking place here is that when he arose, he set that stone up as a pillar and what was happening is that Jacob was setting apart this place as a place where he would worship God. He basically built an altar to God. He said, this place is a sacred place. This place, God is in this place, the house of God, the place where God resides. And so in this place where I sense the presence of God, where I know the presence of God is, I need to worship God. I need to call upon the Lord. I need to to recognize and draw near to God. John 4, 19 through 24. Uh, Jesus was talking to a woman uh, uh, at the well, and the woman said to Jesus, uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation as of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, So what do we learn from that? One of the things that we can learn from that is, is God seeking to save you? Yes. But in receiving salvation, what do we return to the Lord? Worship. Why? Do we worship Him because we have to? Do we worship Him because we're made to? Now we have been impacted by the presence of God, and we've been impacted by the power of God. We've been impacted by the love of God. We're impacted by the promises of God. And in return, we love Him who first loved us. We recognize Him. We uh, honor Him. Really, that's what worship is. We honor Him as being Who he is, our provider, our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior, our healer, our peace, our righteousness. And when we realize who that is, we want to bow down before him and we want to just say, thank you, God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for worship. I mean, for uh, uh, for healing me. Thank you for delivering me, God. I recognize who I was. I was lost, and now I'm found. I recognize that I was wallowing in the mire, and you set me free. You delivered me from the miry clay, God. And it's my privilege, and my honor, and my joy to worship you. When God reveals himself, it's a place of worship. Hebrews 12 and 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Another way of saying, by which we may worship God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Right? Uh, Even in the Lord's Prayer, it says, uh, Our Father which art in heaven. Now, the Lord's Prayer, now people pray, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with you praying the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is more a model for prayer. And so what did Jesus say? When you pray, pray this way. Our Father, not oh distant God or unknown God. Our Father. uh, We're not talking about a bad Father. Some of y'all grew up with bad fathers. It's not a bad Father. It's a revelation. He's a good Father. Our Father, our good, benevolent Father who art in heaven, hallowed, be your name, holy be your name. It reminds me of the angels of God that were in the presence of God, the, the, the seraphim that are going around saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. They're not worshiping because they were wind-up dolls that have been programmed to do that. They're worshiping because every time they get clear, close to God, they recognize how awesome, what wonderful, and they see something about God and they can't help but say, God, you are awesome. You hear what I'm saying? So it's a place of revelation. It's a place of promise. It's a place of worship. But not only is that, what we learn from this is also a place of prayer. It's a place of prayer. Genesis 28, what is the house of God? We learn from this place of first mention, place of revelation, place of promise, place of worship. But we also see that here is a place of prayer. Genesis 28, 20 through 22, Jacob made a vow. He made a pledge. So he was talking to God, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat, clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. There's nobody else with him. He is alone. He's talking out to God. He still didn't have quite that relationship with God where he's talking to him uh, you know, on a first-person basis. He's talking to him on a third-person basis, but he's still talking out loud and making a vow to who? To God. And this stone which I have set up, he says, uh, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, there he uses the word you, of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So, what we see here is Jacob is speaking to God. The text says Jacob made a vow. So, to me, what we find in this place is Jacob was speaking to God, and thus for me, this place, this place called the house of God, is a place of prayer. It's a place of communing with God. Not only do we go there to have an awesome. Uh, uh, understanding of the ma- majesty of God but it's a place where we communicate with God. God speaks to us and we speak back. When you pray you get a revelation of who God is, our Father who is in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven you are praying to him, say let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done you are talking to him. Right? Second Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And, has, and God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'm trying to get you to realize here is that in the New Testament, the house of God is his people. The place where God dwells is his people. When we are born again, we are born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. God lives inside of you. Now, some of you, I don't know if I should say this. I need somebody to say it, it's okay. I was going to say it anyway, but thank you for that. Some of you need to think about the fact that God lives inside of you. Everywhere you go, God is with you. Where are you taking him? You're not hidden from the eyes of God. And so, one of the things that when I began to realize that, and I still realize those things, is I don't want to, I don't want the God that I serve and who lives inside of me to be exposed to some of the things that this world offers. Now, can God handle it? Sure. He's God, He knows everything. But for me, it makes me want to live a more consecrated life. I'll talk to this section over here. For me, it makes me want to live a more consecrated life. Yeah, I had a couple of amens over there. All right. <laughs> Mark 11 and 17. Then he taught, saying to them, Jesus said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of things. It is a place where we commune with God. Matthew 18, 18 through 20, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, they beseech, they pray, and who are we talking about? We're talking about believers. When we're talking about believers, we're talking about the house of God, right? Right? Then, my, my, then uh, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So what do we learn about the house of God? It is a place of prayer. And then finally, last thing I put on here is I put it's a place of surrender. Okay, Genesis 28, 20 through 22, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So at this place called Bethel, and what does Bethel mean? The house of God. Jacob, in the context of prayer, determines that if God is faithful to who he is, his promise of who he is and what he will do, Jacob then determines that first he will surrender his life to God, and then he will surrender his resources to God. Right? I'm not talking about ties tonight. I'm talking about Jacob. If you have a problem with me talking about finances, then take it up with Jacob. Because he's the one that's talking about it, not me. I'm just sharing with you what Jacob said. He said, uh, if he brings me, he brings me to be, be, bring back here in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and of all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth, right? So, two things here. We see it's a place of surrender. He surrenders his life, right? He said, if you do this for me, I will make you my, I will call you my God. I'm going to give you my worship. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you my life. Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And what I'm wanting you to realize is that Jacob was surrendering his life to God. And what I want you to realize is New Testament Christianity has been um, not completely made what's the right word I'm using for I'm trying I'm trying to be politically correct right we've not always done a good job of letting you understand as the people as we preach what it actually means to become a Christian. We preach, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. Is there truth in that? Yes, there is truth in that. Say this prayer, and you can and will be saved. But New Testament Christianity is not about a Savior. It's about a Lord. It's about a Lord who saves you. So a lot of people get saved, and they never recognize Him as Lord. What we want people to recognize is that Jesus is Lord, and when you recognize him as Lord, if you will give him your life, you will will find that he will save you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So that's why when people get saved, nothing changes in their life, because to them, they don't have to surrender anything other than say a prayer. But in actuality, if you're going to serve God and you want to serve God in a way where God becomes evident and visible and your life becomes evident and visible uh, to those around you and God becomes evident in you and through you, then you are going to live a life of surrender. And it's not just one-time surrender. It's surrendering over and over and over again. It's no longer your life. It's His life. You hear what I'm saying? Didn't it that we said, if you confess with your mouth the Savior Jesus? No. It says if we confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Lord is, uh, um, even if we just go back to medieval days, the Lord is the one that owned all the land. This was an agricultural society. It wasn't a a currency society. It was an agricultural society. Everything was done through agriculture. And so the one that owned the land was the one that was in charge. Owned everything, right? And so if you wanted to to be able to make a living or existence, you would uh, uh, give your life... To the Lord, you would pledge yourself to the Lord, and they would give you land, they would give you resources so you could not only uh, 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 um, uh, sow, and, and, uh, sow seed and, and reap a harvest for the Lord, the manor, but also for yourself, right? It wasn't your land, it was his land. But the benevolent Lord also learn how to work with the vassals on the land. I'm going back to medieval times, but if we were to go back even farther, understanding of Lord, a Lord is the owner of all. What, 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 what about us? Well, it's my life. Yes, it's your life, and the reason you're getting saved is because you're a terrible Lord of your life. If you were a good steward of your life and a good Lord of your life, nobody would get saved. But the reason you need to get saved is because your life is falling apart. Uh, you, you know, you're sick, you can't control the sickness, you can't control uh, uh, your spouse, you can't control your family, you can't control your job, you can't control your, your addictions, you can't control your lust, you can't control any of that. Right? I need help. So what do you do? you got to give, not just, hey, Jesus, come in my life and hang out, and let's just, let's just chill out together, man. No. That's how we present it sometimes, and I'm not saying there's not a part of it that's something like that, but the reality is, I'm lost. I need help. I need someone to save me, and the way it works is you give your life to God and say, God, I've made a mess of it. When I'm in charge, nothing works, so I'm going to give you my life. You say, you're going to have to prove that to me. Galatians 2 and 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why would I do that? Why would I give my life to God? Because he's a good God who gave his life for you. You hear what I'm saying? So, not only did he give his life, but we also find that he surrendered his resources. Right? So a lot of people get saved, but they don't want to surrender their stuff. It's my stuff. Well, of course it's your stuff, you know? But what we don't realize is that when you are impacted by the presence of God, you begin to realize that the only reason you have stuff is because God blessed you with it. No, I went out and worked, but who gave you the talent? Who gave you the ability? Who gave you the uh, the resource? Who gave you all that stuff? Who gave you the mind? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the favor? God. And when you recognize him for who he is, uh, the, the awesome thing, even though we're not talking about time, when you recognize him for who he is, the Bible says, give and it shall be given unto you. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the firstfruits of all your crops and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's what the Bible says. Luke sixteen ten through 13. He who, who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, and he's talking about money, he's talking about resources. He said, if you can't be faithful with money, who do you think, uh, why would you think that God's going to commit to you the true riches? You hear what I'm saying? Money is a test. And if you learn how to deal with your resources and the way that God says, then God will give you more. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be loyal to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Some translations say you cannot serve God in money. So how do I keep from serving money? You surrender it to God. And the way God says you surrender it is you give a tenth to him. Isn't that what Jacob did? And by the way, this is not law. The law hasn't been given yet. There's no law here. He said, well, tithing is law. This is pre-law, and yet if we find that this is the first mention of the house of God. And at the first mention of the house of God, <clears throat> you have giving, surrendering your resources to God. Right? No law. Now, it's such a good principle and it's a heavenly principle that they brought it into the law. But it's pre-law. And so it was pre law. So even when they got rid of the law, it still exists. Because the principle is you worship God by honoring Him with your wealth. And as you do that, it opens doors for you to God do, for God to do even more in your life, because he who is faithful in little will be faithful with much. If you're faithful with the unrighteous mammon, he will give you even more true riches. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So the house of God is a place of surrender. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to the presence of God, the closer you will find that you are constantly shedding things in your life. There are things that I won't do today that was perfectly okay for me to do a couple of years ago. Right? I don't want to do them anymore. What? Surrendering. It's not, oh, you know, uh, uh, you realizing now it was sin. No, it's not that it was sin. It's just that I don't want to do that. Anymore. I don't feel comfortable in the presence of God when I do that. I don't feel comfortable with this. Uh, whatever it may be, right? I mean, there were some things that I could watch, you know, uh, uh, a couple of years. Just something very innocuous. I could watch some things a couple of years ago, and now it's like, I don't want to watch that. And my kids don't understand. So why there's nothing wrong with it? Just don't want to watch it anymore.? Right? Don't feel comfortable watching it. I don't like that stuff anymore. It doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. And I, in fact, when I do watch it, I come away feeling unclean sometimes, and so I just don't want to do that. Oh, Dad, nobody's making me. It's not legalism. I just don't want to. I'm surrendering things to the Lord. I'm giving those things to him right? Some of y'all, perfectly acceptable when you get saved. You come out of a certain type of lifestyle. You're smoking. uh, 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 You get saved. You continue to smoke. You don't necessarily have a conviction. Nobody's sitting there telling you, uh, uh, you know, even though we we joke about it. I'm Christian. I don't, uh, uh, how how does it go? I don't, uh, yeah, well, there's another one. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't chew or date girls who do, right? Right. So, Uh, but, you know, you know we, we don't force anybody. We want people to come to church. We want them to get in the presence of God, right? Some things are sinful. Some things, listen, uh, living with somebody and having sex out of wedlock is sin. Sin. It's not, oh, you know, I'll share that. No, that is sin. The Bible says it's sin. Okay? Uh, uh, um, sex with the uh, same sex... Today, it seems to be okay. The Bible calls it an abomination. It's sin. It's wrong. All right, some things are, you don't have to, if those things are taking place, then we're going to, and you come into the house of God, and it's not shed pretty quick. We're going to talk to you. You need to know this is wrong. And we cannot allow sin to leaven itself in the house of God. All right, so we're going to deal with it. We're going to hit it. We're going to hit it. We're going to hit it. If we know what's going on, we're going to hit it. Okay, but some other things, eh, you know, not necessarily. Somebody that smokes doesn't say anything in the Bible about smoking, you know, whatever the case may be. But what we find is that the closer you get to God, it's amazing how people say, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore, you know? And it just sheds. It just just. I don't feel comfortable doing that anymore. Or, you know, you, you get saved, and, 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 and for a while I've had people that got saved, and, and uh, they, they, they kind of had filthy mouths, and they come into the church, and, and, and <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, uh, they may not necessarily always cuss in church. They realize I shouldn't be cussing in church, but they cuss out there. But then after a while, it's like, well, if I can't cuss in church, why am I cussing out there? And all of a sudden, they begin, I've got to change my behavior. I've got to change the way I do things. I've got to change what I do, you know? And it, so what's happening? They're shedding things in their life. Because the closer you get to God, the more you realize you need to surrender to God. But you're not surrendering because I have to and I'm going to go to hell and all these kinds of stuff. No, you're surrendering because you want to please him and you want to enjoy the fellowship. And then you realize that this, this is not good for our relationship. Right? It's something you do out of love. So the house of God is a place of surrender. So to conclude... Right As we've seen today, this text is the first place where the concept of the house of God is mentioned. What do they call that place? It's called Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. So how is the house of God defined in this text according to this law of interpretation called the law of first mention? What we see is that the house of God is defined as a place of revelation, a place of promise, a place of worship, a place of prayer, and a place of surrender. What we hopefully realize is that the church or the people of God, is the house of God today. And as it was then, the house of God today, we should also find these characteristics in evidence wherever the presence of God is manifest as the people of God gather together in his name. Uh, The house of God, the church of today, should be a place where people can come and experience God a place of revelation. It should be a place where they come and they hear the promises of God, the promises of salvation, the promise of healing, the promise of deliverance, the promise of a better life, the promise of an eternal life with God. Right? This should be a place of worship where we worship God, not worship the creature, but we worship the creator. It should be a place of prayer. Uh, my, my house is, is called a house of Prayer, nothing happens except through prayer. Prayer is the engine that drives the church. Prayer, uh, there's a lot of things you can do. How does it go? There's a lot of things you can do. Forget it, we'll go on. It's also a place, I don't have any revelation on that. (laughs) All right, it's also a place of surrender. It's a place where you give Things up. And we're probably going to talk about, I have a message here on Sunday uh, that I'm going to be talking about, is that believers, not not non-Christians, non-Christians, we're talking about believers, Christians, right? In the book of Acts, chapter 19, when the presence of God began to move and demons were being cast out, and, and, and these things were happening, all of a sudden the fear of God fell on the church, and the church began to bring their junk. The church believers spirit-filled people because paul was preaching a spirit-filled message so these are people that were saved and they were spirit-filled they were bringing their books not other people's books their books that were how to practice witchcraft and they were burning them because they realized i don't i got to get rid of this stuff right so what are other things that we carry that we need to surrender to the lord That if the Lord begins to move, I I can't open that door. I don't want you to know what's in that door, God, so I'm not going to let you in that part of my house. I want God to have full reign in every part of my house. And if it means i got to give stuff up, then that's what's going to happen because I want